have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single-family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. If you want to do the best possible job, go in and either caulk or use an expandable, a low-expansion foam around all of those cracks and then come back and put the bat insulation over that. The bat's going to fill the big cavity, but it's not going to seal it extremely tight. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. It's the show that answers the questions that are important to today's homeowner. That's you. If you have a question or a comment for Ken, you can always uh, forward those questions to our website. You can email those questions to KenTheContractor.com, or you can give us a call at 800-614-2975. We'll start this hour talking about... Crawl spaces. We seem to have more calls than a few, especially when we're in, uh, I guess, the warmer months of the year. We have some of those in the winter where those of you are saying, do I need to close these foundation vents? I thought we'd just take this entire segment and talk a little more about foundations, the crawl space options that you have, some of the changes in building codes, and moisture control. Because years ago, nobody paid any attention to crawl spaces. Then building codes gradually talked about specifics when it comes to air circulation, certain amount of vents that have to be installed per 100 square feet, and that varies from one building code to the next in many cases. Also, the need for vapor barriers to be installed on that floor area, the soil or the stone that's down there to cover that up to help reduce the amount of moisture that gets into that crawl space. But researchers have continued to study this for a period of time. What we recognize is that what we're doing in our crawl spaces clearly is better than doing absolutely nothing with moisture control and ventilation, but we can do even better than that. We're still allowing some degree of moisture to form in these crawl space areas. When we have moisture, even with limited circulation, we have the potential for mold and mildew. Those mold spores get up into our house. That can create issues for those, especially with allergies. And we're seeing some gradual changes. We've seen this in the International Residential Code in recent years, where there's some options of doing what's called conditioning the, the space, and you say conditioning, you're talking about heating and cooling? Well, absolutely, we'll address that. There's also another one called encapsulation, which is where the walls and the floor are completely covered, all the way up the floor of the crawl space, that is, are completely covered with moisture barrier, vapor barrier, and that it's covered all the way to your floor structure. So there's several things that are taking place that are different and somewhat unique from the traditional crawl space treatment that we're accustomed to in construction. As I said, we recognize mold and mildew is an issue. We talk about that in our basements, especially if you have an unfinished basement. You're apt to have more ground moisture coming up if you have no floor slab either in that basement area. And we know there are issues there. Your crawl space is very much the same. This becomes a little more of an issue Though than just the the mold spores that are there, it becomes a financial issue also if we happen to have, let's say, our hot water heater in a crawl space. We happen to have heating and ventilation systems that are down there. If you're not closing vents in the wintertime, you've got cold air that gets in there, and it's working against the sheet metal or the ductwork, and it's causing that air that you just paid to produce that's warm, causing it to cool much more rapidly, which means your system runs longer. may have the same impact on a hot water heater by causing it to cycle a little 
little more frequently because you have cooler air down there. And if you don't maintain the proper circulation, even if you forget about mold and mildew for a moment, you have the potential for condensation and you have rust that forms and other issues that shortens the life of these particular products. Now, to talk briefly about these encapsulation, as I said, certainly is a, is one of the alternates that we're seeing today. It helps us with our moisture control, and as I said, it completely lines the foundation walls, the floor slab, all the way up to the main structure. And if you're doing that, then you're not looking at air movement. You're not introducing moisture, hot or cold air. When you move further, and this is the one I really want to spend a moment or two on because the, the building codes, as I said, have been modified to address this, and I want to be clear about this so you don't just run out and start throwing an air conditioning duct in your crawl space, has to do with conditioning that space. And you're really treating that crawl space much like you are the conditioned space in your house. You're not adding a separate air conditioning system. If you happen to have ductwork in that crawl, it's ideal because at that point, once you have completely sealed the crawl area, and again, it is encapsulated, you're going further than just encapsulating the space, it is completely sealed. So now you're saying the same air that I'm circulating in the house is going into that crawl area. It really becomes another room. Uh, it's an unfinished room. But that room is sealed much like your home is as well. And you're putting a supply duct in right off of the ductwork that's already in that space so that it's temperature controlled. You're eliminating or clearly reducing, if not totally eliminating, the potential for condensation being formed on plumbing lines, on waste lines, on the HVAC system, all those other things that are typically in that crawl space. And it's, uh, it is causing you to dump a little more air in there. So I do want you to be aware that it can do two things. And hopefully, from the statistical data that I've seen, this becomes a positive, not a negative. But I've read some data on this that now it's been tested for a period of time. It's showing that if you're dumping air down there, and some of the HVAC contractors, many are on board, some have a little issue with this, that you're now putting air in a space that the system wasn't designed for in terms of capacity. The intent here is not to condition it at the identical level that you may have upstairs in the main house, but enough to reduce the potential for moisture and other issues that are down there. So we're seeing it take a little more airflow through that area. A unit may run just a little bit longer, but we're also seeing the data that I have read showing that there's more than a payback. You're actually making money. You're saving money by not having the loss of energy on the duct systems, on the hot water heater, and the potential problems that you have with condensation, rusting pipes, and other items. So these are some things that I want you to think about. If you're having crawl space issues, and several of you call me on a regular basis and ask me this, I want you to consider all these options. I want you to know that some are new technology in the industry that they are working, they're being studied on a continuous basis, and that the old days of simply doing nothing have been out for a long period of time. The old days of just putting a moisture barrier down and having a proper amount of air ventilation is still there. You still have that option, but you have to maintain, open, and control those vents. You do have options with encapsulation. You also have the option of conditioning that crawl space. But there are standards for all of these, and if you don't do them right, if you don't follow the directions, if you don't follow your local codes, then, folks, it's not going to perform like it should. You're going to be unhappy. And in many cases, you may create more issues, including health issues, for your home. The last item I have to say about this is not every building code has adopted all of these changes. So if you're thinking about any of these, I want you to check with your local building code officials first. Be sure they're on board. Be sure that it's in the code cycle that you're actually operating under. And then whatever you do, follow the instructions. This is one of those things that I think for most people, I'm going to recommend that you hire a pro. You bring someone in that knows what they're talking about. Also, as always, 
get at least three bids. You're going to find that any of these systems that we're discussing run from low to high. And you're going to be able to compare side by side the materials that are being used, the uh, type of vapor barrier, the thickness on that. All of that has to do with the pricing. So always, always, always do your homework. But this will help you have a healthier house and save some operating costs as you go down the road. Well, until I moved south a few years ago, I'd never even heard of a crawl space because I had always lived in homes with basements uh, through the period of time. And, and since I did move south, I, I just see the how much more relevant and and how much more readily you run into homes that have been built on crawl spaces. Well, it's pretty common in any part of the country where the land is not relatively level. That's where you start seeing mostly slab-on-grade structure when it's fairly flat. Coming up, uh, Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, will answer your questions. If you have a question for Ken, email it to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here to answer the questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Let's go back to the phone lines right now, and we've got a, a question from Shannon. And Shannon joins us next. Shannon, hi. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hey, I have two quick questions. Well, okay. one of them is probably not real quick. I've got some hairline cracks in a concrete porch, and they've been there for years, and they're not growing. But what's the best way to to seal those or to fill them? Is the when you say porch, you're talking about the horizontal slab itself? Yes. Okay, yes, not sir. in brickwork or or a retaining no, no, wall. No, no, it's, okay. it's, it's a concrete patio. Okay. And there's it cracked about two years after we put it in, and it hasn't really changed any. I've watched it, but I just I thought I would probably ought to put something in there to keep it from filling with moisture. And roughly how wide are these cracks? Are they as much as um, an eighth of an inch? They wouldn't. I mean, you could hardly get a, yeah, I mean, like a toothpick. Okay. Barely. Probably couldn't get a toothpick hardly in them. All right. A I mean, they're very, very small. A self-leveling urethane is going to be a good caulk that will seal those. It also is easy for you to install. You may not find it in many of the hardware or, I'll say, big box stores. You may have to go to a wholesale house that sells concrete products to contractors. This is where I typically get it. But uh, there What do you call it now? It, it's a self-leveling urethane caulk. This will set up like a piece of, of rubber material. Mm-hmm. And it will find its own level. So if you've got an area in the joint that's open, let's say, to as much of an eighth of an inch, it may settle more rapidly there. If it's a sixteenth of an inch, it's going to be settle less rapidly. If the crack doesn't go all the way through, it's not going to take as much. But the beauty of this is you can apply it. It will seek its own level. It will fill the void. And it may – you I we actually overfill it slightly. And then once it cures fully, and it'll depending on your manufacturer, it will tell you the curing time. It may be 24 to 72 hours. Then you come back with a razor knife, scrape the surface clean with the concrete, and it's a good, smooth, clean finish, but you fill the crack without a whole lot of effort. You want to be certain that you take a vacuum cleaner, though, and you vacuum all the fines, the dirt, the loose materials that's in that crack first. Or you fill it. But that that works question. pretty well. That also works for larger joints, expansion joints that may have deteriorated over time. But when you get into a wider joint, you typically will need to put some type of a foam backer rod in it and then hold it down an inch or, or a half inch to an inch and then put this self-leveling product on top of it. It works very well. Okay. 
I have a I have a large spring about two hundred feet from my house, and I was wondering how would that work for a geothermal unit? It could be very useful, depending on the volume of water and the temperature of the water. You'd well, it's it's coming out of the ground. It's just you know it's very cold, but it never freezes. Right. So you're probably it, maintaining what is it? Basically, an unlimited supply. I mean, it fills a pond. Yeah, it could be very helpful to you. And if you're thinking about that, then I would consult with uh, somebody that's a specialist in in uh, geothermal heating and cooling, and have them use that as part of their analysis to use that constant spring water as opposed to drilling the wells. That's where so much of the cost comes in on geothermal is <clears throat> drilling the wells, putting the well points in, and it depends on how many you need as well and then this whether you have rock strata whether you're in um, you know sandy soil all of that can impact that cost but if you have a constant water source that may be beneficial i would certainly bring someone out that's a specialist and have them look at that and see if that's practical for you i believe it will be a money saver if you're looking for geothermal all right thank you Thanks for the call. We appreciate you listening. Shannon, thank you. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or forward your questions in email form to kenthecontractor.com. we got an email right now out of uh, Indiana, Ken, and it's uh, basement waterproofing is the subject. Yeah, and oddly enough, this one comes to us from Ken, and he listens to us on WTRC 95.3 in South Bend, Indiana. Ken, we appreciate you tuning in. You've got a water issue in your basement. You're asking me, how do you fix a wet Michigan basement? It already has a coat of cement over it, so I assume what you're telling me is that it's been parged. That's typically uh, some older style construction. You give me more information here. And you say it, it has no floor drain system, but it does have a sump pump, and you've got water that's seeping through the floor, coming up through the floor as well as the wall. And what that tells me is you're coping with clearly groundwater, not just heavy rain, meaning that it can run off from the outside, but it may be coming in near the top of your basement. The fact that you have it coming up through the floor slab, probably the cold joints, is indicative of that, just a rising groundwater situation. Well, first and foremost, you've got an existing situation that you need to be sure works, Ken, and that is to be sure that the sump pump is working. If it's been in place for many years, uh, and I know this is relatively level area in and around your part of Indiana, that you probably don't have a lot of slope where you have anything draining by gravity from a basement area. So you need to be sure that the pump is working and that the line, the discharge line on that pump, is unclogged, that you actually have a good free flow of water. So that's simply a maintenance item. But in terms of the fix, there are a lot of companies that will want to come and work on this on the inside, perhaps even putting trenches around the floor, going to another sump, lining or coating the walls on the interior. All of those are repair possibilities. Many of the companies that do this work provide a very valuable service, especially when there is no alternative to this. But you ask, how do you fix it? And the best, the only way, and the right way to fix a leaking problem from wall areas and to relieve the pressure from coming up under the floor is to have it drained by gravity so that you're not relying on a pump. In your case, it sounds like you can't. So two things need to occur. One, if you're going to solve the water problem in the basement, parging used to be considered a valuable solution, a way to remedy this. We know now that it really is not, or at least certainly is not, a good long-term way of waterproofing a basement. You need to have the exterior walls excavated, the wall area, and waterproofing applied. There are a number of waterproofing systems and membranes and products that will do a good job. One that I have used for many years and have had great success with is a product called Rubber Wall. And this is a spray-on applied product that once it cures, may take it 24 to 36 hours, 
it sets up like a solid sheet of rubber on that block wall or stone foundation. Whatever you have, it fills these crevices, and it will expand and contract as that foundation moves from the summer to the winter so that it doesn't split like parging does. And so parging is a cement material. It does not move. And as these walls expand and contract, it gradually cracks. And over time, you get moisture back in when the intent was to prevent moisture from getting in by parging the wall. So, but that's just one of many products that are available. That is the only way to permanently resolve a basement water issue as far as the walls are concerned. That can be quite expensive. You can look at other options, as I said earlier, that deal with coatings on the interior, that also deal with collection drains on the inside. This helps address the problem but does not solve it. As far as the water coming up through the slab, that really is hydrostatic pressure. That is a rising water table. And when it gets so high, if it can't get in through the walls, it's going to find some other place. You've got a weakened point where the slab meets the wall in your basement. For you, in flat area, that's where the sump pump is going to be very important. And if one's not enough... You may want to have a second one put in, and if you do, I'm going to suggest it be on a battery backup so that when you have a power outage, you at least have one pump always pulling water out of the ground before it comes up above that basement slab. Good luck. This is one of these problems, though. If you don't take care of it, it's only going to get worse. No, it's not. That's why I can just say, here's the solution. Good luck on that, Ken. You're going to have to do some research. Unfortunately, it's going to cost you some money for the right permanent solution. I wish I had better advice that would be a little cheaper, but sometimes you just have to bite the bullet if you're going to solve the problem. This is Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, uh, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Answers. If you have a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com, or give us a call at 800-614-2975. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. This is Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's a Class A licensed contractor who's designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects, as well as single family homes up and down the East Coast. He's also owned his own construction company for over 30 years, and now he brings his years of experience to the radio and the internet to help you deal with the questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you do have a question for Ken, you can join us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email your questions to the website kenthecontractor.com time now for this week's edition of in the news weekly ken brings products trends tips and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance purchases remodeling and new construction this week in the news is all about an update on solar shingle systems yes that's exactly what i said given the number of phone calls and emails we have about solar shingles i thought this would be very appropriate now i've mentioned to you in the past two companies both dow that was one of the first if not the first to actually produce a solar shingle for ordinary to replace or to blend in with ordinary asphalt shingles but CertainTeed, which is also a huge manufacturer of roofing products, jumped on the bandwagon a little bit later, and they have different styles. So this week, CertainTeed talks or has introduced an upgrade in the Apollo 2 photovoltaic roofing system, which is providing even more power than ever. Now, unlike the rack-mounted solar arrays that we're accustomed to seeing on our roof, said these low-profile panels are installed in flash-like skylights and can also be woven into shingles to create a nearly seamless appearance, according to the firm's uh, documentation. Now, they only weigh, these panels weigh only 12 pounds, the modules do, so they're absolutely light, and they're rated to withstand 110-mile-an-hour winds, which is something that many of the people producing solar panels have had issues with in the past. One more thing that's equally important 
is that they have a 250 pound per square foot load resistance. That means it's not bad. You don't want to every day, but it's okay to get up and walk on top of these things. You can't say that about other solar panels. But I'll tell you, probably one of the most impressive things to me about at least the Apollo tile system that they have is that this mimics, I said, when you look at the detail, it mimics cement tile roofs that are so common in many parts of the country, especially where you have exposure to forest fires and insurance companies are requiring non-combustible roof materials be used. So, again, if you have any more information or questions and you want more information about it, you want to go to CertainteedSolar.com. That will be posted on my website, but it's CertainteedSolar.com. The other thing I want to tell you about this, both products that I've talked about, I have seen them in use, both the CertainTeed product as well as the Dow product work well. There are different applications for each. But Dow still has not expanded their product line nationwide. They are doing selective states at a time. The certain Teed brand you will find in almost every state with available installers. Two different products for two different purposes, but for all of you that ask me about these solar shingles, now you have options. Go to the website, in this case, CertainTeedSolar.com. And let's go back to the phones, and it's Janice who joins us right now. Hi, Janice. You're on the air with Kevin the Contractor. Hi, Janice. I have a quick question for you. Okay. Um, regarding your air conditioning system. All right. Since it's the season, it is we the know, season. Yeah, we know we're going to need it. So, um, in the past couple years, um, our AC unit is about 15 or so years old. The past couple seasons, we've been having problems with the freon leaking. So, what we're looking at is replacing the unit. But how do I know if, in that amount of time, you know? Systems, I'm sure, have gotten a whole lot better and, and whatnot. How do I know if I need to replace the duct work? Well, unless you've had a catastrophic issue, a fire in the home or something in the meantime where the duct works had opportunity to fill up with smoke or water from putting a fire out or something, you do not need to replace the duct work. The duct work should last as long as the home does in almost every case. Okay, so what? that no, the system the being more efficient now doesn't have anything to do with um, how it would come through. and Okay, well, we got a quote, and I kind of wondered if I was being taken a little bit well, um, because they told me I couldn't replace the unit without entirely replacing all the ductwork underneath the house. Okay. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about some different scenarios. And okay. when the Has the system adequately heated and cooled the house the years you've lived there? Yes. Okay. So typically what will happen, and most people will recognize this early on, if there is a duct issue, and usually that's because of inadequate return air ducting, it's not always about the supply side, but the return air side, usually that surface is pretty early in the life of a unit and people living in a home, and they'll find they have uh, just inadequate air balance in the house for that reason. In some cases, mechanical contractors, the AC contractors, will recommend you need to replace or modify a portion of the duct work. There are also opportunities where maybe somebody did not put an adequately sized drop into a bedroom or a living room, and you need to enlarge that. But unless the main trunk lines in the system were so poorly designed on the initial install, when you are replacing or when when your systems just age out or require so much maintenance it's time to upgrade, you Uh you rarely need to deal with the ductwork side. But if you've got 
one, and I always suggest you get three bids, but if you've got three people coming out saying the return error is inadequate, you need to extend it into this hallway or you need to put a low return as well as your high to make it function better, you do want to listen to that. But I've never experienced a situation where all the ductwork, I mean, from scratch, needs to be replaced unless it has been affected by anything from, as I just said earlier, a catastrophic situation, fire, smoke, excessive water, exposure to the elements, those type things. Okay, yeah, it's not been all my fires have been on the stove, so, okay. you know. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, there's nothing, you know, water or anything like that. Um, we've, he, when we first bought the house, it was functioning fine. I think the Freon, I think it's just age. It's yeah. just getting well, yeah, you, to the point where You have obtained about 15 years, you said, of service out of this equipment. You have done very, very well. You've gotten your money's worth out of it because... About 12 to 15 years is the average life of the equipment, it, especially a heat pump. It works 12 months out of the year. Oh, and, okay. Well, that I did not know. Okay, and, great. And the other thing you need to know, if this is a 15-year-old unit, it probably has a SEER, which is an energy efficiency rating of 10, maybe 11 on it. And today, at the minimum, you're going to get a 13. What I want to encourage you to do is ask your bidders, your contractors, if they give you a base price of a 13 SEER, how much will it cost to go to a 14 or a 15? Okay. They are much more energy efficient, and you will find that until you get into a dual compressor role, and I think that starts at 16, that you may add 150 to $200 to jump up each point. You'll get a payback on that in probably two to four years in energy savings. Okay. All right. It, it doesn't change the ductwork. It just changes the energy efficiency of the air handler and the compressor. And whatever you do, especially with that age on them, be sure you replace both units, not just the outside unit. Ah, uh, yes. We've I've discussed that. I was aware that I had to replace both pieces. So, okay. And then you'll be good to go for another 12 to 15 years. You'll be saving money in the meantime on your energy cost. Which everybody likes. Everybody so, likes right. that. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for the call. We appreciate you listening. Janice, we do appreciate it, and I would think, Ken, of among our most asked questions, is it time to replace that heating and cooling unit? That would have to be very close to the top of our list. That's one I'll have to look at. I can actually check into that, look at our numbers, but you're probably right, and I think that's because it's comfort. It's how we live and feel in our house every day, and that makes it fresh on our mind almost literally where so many things that are out of sight we don't pay attention to, but we know how we feel in the house. We're either too hot, we're too cold. Too much moisture, too dry. Do you have a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor? Give us a call, 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Well, you can join us right here. Each week, Ken Patterson takes your calls and questions at 800-614-2975 or answers your emails through our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Well, let's start this segment, Ken, by going to North Dakota. Yeah, Carrie has a cabinet problem. You tell me that you live in an older home that has basic cabinets. Also tell me that you bought the home last year and the kitchen had recently been remodeled. Now, after your short time in the house, you're saying, I can't stack more than two cans high without them falling over due to the shelves sagging in these cabinets. How do they go bad so fast and what can I do to straighten them out? Well, Carrie, depending on the grade of cabinet that you have, and you've already described a few things to me about this when you're saying they're fairly basic, we tend to look at things from an appearance standpoint and say they look good, but then we have to evaluate the performance. 
One of the areas that I found from so many cabinet manufacturers that, that really bother me, because it wouldn't take a whole lot to modify this dollar-wise and produce a much better interior cabinet and have the, the user, the end user, think more highly of it, but they produce thinner and thinner shelves year after year after year. And when I've had to order cabinets for a client that wanted a particular brand, I've actually specified the shelf thickness and the type of supports for those. And even with stock or pre-manufactured cabinets, they will deal with these minor upgrades. And for you and others, this is something you should consider when you're replacing cabinets. Now, what you probably have is a cabinet shelf that's not much more than three-eighths of an inch thick. They're producing them that thin today. And if they don't have adequate supports on the styles, the back of the cabinet or the styles between the doors, then I promise you it won't take much weight for a very long period of time before they sag permanently. Now, once they've done this, the chances are very remote that you're going to straighten that out. Most of these cabinets are made of particle board or the shelves are, and they have a great tendency to sag under weight. Now, the way you resolve this one is you can go down to the local cabinet company and you can order shelves for this particular brand of cabinet, but you want to specify a shelf that is at least a half inch, and I recommend five-eighths of an inch because that's what I buy as a minimum on cabinet shelves if I'm buying stock cabinets. I want a five-eighths inch shelf, and I also want to be sure that they are supported at every point possible at the rear of the cabinet and on the front styles, the vertical styles as well, so that I can load those with the things that you want to put in your kitchen because, after all, if you can't put things in there, they're just not usable for you. But that's the problem you've got is going to be the shelf was it may have met the canyon cabinet manufacturer spec, but it's too thin to function long-term. If it has not sagged severely, you may, and I would experiment with this, if you can pull that shelf out, assuming that, and I'm guessing that this is an adjustable shelf, pull it out, flip it over. If it's finished on both sides, be sure you have the little stops that are in place all the way around it. You may even add some if there's none on the vertical styles and see if that won't support the load, but I'm thinking you're probably going to have to replace those shelves, and a local cabinet company or installer can take care of that for you. I don't ever remember somebody saying, you know, I wish we had built cheaper, smaller cabinets. No, and, and that is a real nuisance. It looks great when people are going in to buy a home or you've just set a, new cabinets in remodeling your kitchen, or it can be bathroom cabinets. It really doesn't matter. And you put the normal load in them that you intend to use, the things you store inside your cabinets, and over a period of a few months, you start seeing them sag a little bit. And then as Carrie's talking about, now you're stack, trying to stack two or three cans high, and the stuff falls over. That's not how cabinets are supposed to perform. And I can get in my on my soapbox in a hurry on this, but that's a case where I think an industry in some cases is looking at the price. How do we make it less costly? How do we make it cheaper? And you make the product so cheap that it just doesn't perform like it's supposed to. There is a point that you just can't go beyond and still expect performance. All right. Time for our universal design segment. Well, this one is one I have to commend a, uh, some letters that many of you out there are familiar with called AARP. Now, AARP has worked diligently with the Commonwealth of Virginia in establishing up to $5,000 in state income tax credits for people remodeling their home to make it more accessible and or for building new homes that qualify for accessible living. Now, I can also tell you that other states, such as Georgia and New York, have some similar programs. But this is one that's fairly fresh as far as their involvement with the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, they've established several programs 
that I want you to think a little bit about for those of you that live in homes that may say, I, I need this to be a little more accessible, or you have parents or relatives that need to have greater access in and around their home. If you have to make certain upgrades, I want you to check with your state, especially if you have a state income tax, and see if there are, are some forms of credit available. Some of these apply to income levels only up to a certain amount. Others apply across the board to everybody, including contractors constructing new homes or doing additions that make this eligible for some form of tax credit. This is not common all across the United States. This is something you have to do on your own. So depending on what state you live in, if you're getting ready to do some of these upgrades, widening doors, installing grab bars, you may be pulling carpet out, putting hardwood floor in, something that eliminates falls and so forth, but you need to check and see if there are tax credits available. I know we have a number of affiliates in Virginia, so I'm telling all of our listeners there, that this is available up to $5,000 in the Commonwealth of Virginia, something you want to check on if you're trying to convert or build a home for accessible living. Very good. And we have time to deal with an issue uh, for Kimberly out of Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah, Kimberly and her husband happen to have two homes, and they have a problem in the second home. She said, we spend a lot of time in the second home during the week. That's where our jobs happen to be. So apparently she enjoys, she and her husband, living on the weekends or making their resident in another city. But she says, at our second home, the city's talking about widening a road that will require them to take about half of the rear yard. We know this will lower the value of the home and make the rear yard very small. What op- options do we have? Do we really have any? Well, Kimberly, I wish I could bring good news to you, but I'm going to make some suggestions. Typically, when a city, when a county, when a state gets ready to widen road and it's in the public interest of doing so, you're either going to be required to sell them the property or fight with them, and they're going to take that property under eminent domain. Now, there are a lot of issues in different states regarding eminent domain and laws that have been passed. So if this is strictly for a development, for private use, if you will, and the city saying we're allowing this or the county or the state, that's something you may check into because this is very controversial around the country where states or local governments have the right to take land for development purposes, not for the general good of that population. So first I want you to check on that. And if you find that this is a public road intended to be usable for absolutely everyone, it's not designated for any specific development purpose, and the state or the county is taking this right-of-way, then you need to sit down and negotiate with them in good faith because you really don't have too many options at that point. You need to get the greatest number of dollars you can out of it and be sure mostly that it's fair with the price per square foot for the land in and around your area. The other thing that comes into play is not just the cost of the land per square foot, but the negative impact that it may have on your home when it comes time to sell that because it will not only devalue it by square foot of land, but if the yard is smaller and people in your neighborhood looking for larger lots for families and this is less desirable, then it has also essentially taken away some of the value of that home. That needs to be considered by the the, the government, the state, whoever is acquiring this right-of-way for uh, public use. That needs to be considered when you settle on the final dollars and cents. Whatever you do, get it in writing. The last thing, if you find you're making no headway on your own, you may want to contact with an attorney that's a specialist in right-of-way acquisition that represents individuals where property is being taken or purchased for right-of-way use. Unfortunately, you have some things you need to do, but if you're willing to invest some time, you will come out with the best deal that serves your municipality or your state as well as you as the homeowner and give you a little bit of consolation when it comes time to sell the house and you're going to get fewer dollars for it. So 
Good luck with that one as well. Got some homework to do. I wish you well. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt, and we appreciate you joining us this hour right here on Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.